I think about like the Best Buys and the Apples of the world. And like, they really have done a great job of building out an experience when you go into the store. You're not just going to like try on a sweater. You're going because you want to interact with their product experts. You want to actually touch and feel the technologies. Welcome to Transform It Forward, the podcast that gives you an inside look into the before and after some of the world's most effective transformation processes. I'm your host, Paul French. Today, I'm excited to welcome Aviva Fink to the show. Aviva is VP of Growth and Partnerships at Reonomy, a company that leverages big data, partnerships, and machine learning to connect the fragmented, disparate world of commercial real estate. There aren't many industries that are currently dealing with greater change than commercial real estate right now. And I'm excited to discuss about how having the right data and mindset is going to make that transformation possible. Aviva, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. So it's a fascinating time in your business. Um, commercial real estate is one of the largest industries. Uh, it's a huge asset allocation, but there are massive questions about what the pandemic's going to do to it and about it. Reduction in demand for office and physical retail, huge increases in warehouse. Where does the market go from here? Oh, wow. We're starting with uh, something really light. I love it. Um, You know, it's really interesting because depending on who you talk to, they're they're almost like polarizing or just kind of extreme points of view. Some people are really bullish. Other people are really concerned. And I think it really, you know, 2021 will be the year that kind of tells the story of what the post-COVID recovery looks like. And obviously that's not just for commercial real estate, it's the way that we return to normal and create a new normal in general. But I think some of the changes that were catalyzed by 2020 were changes that the industry was preparing to deal with anyway. It just increased the pace at which those transformations became front and center. So for example, industrial becoming an increasingly popular asset class, and we'll start with something positive because industrial definitely is more in that category. People were moving to online shopping and e-commerce was becoming an increasingly popular form of purchasing anyway. COVID just kind of pushed that over the edge. And you know, my, the more senior members of my family who had been reluctant to adopt and to embrace the apps that would help them get items in you know, one tap, finally embraced those technologies because they didn't really have a choice. So, so I think the industry was already preparing for the demand on industrial space. And they're now thinking about ways of creating more industrial space, the price per square foot, very exciting returns for, for all of the owner operators. So everyone feels really good there. In terms of other things, other asset classes you mentioned, like hospitality, even the use of office space, I think generally the industry is pretty optimistic about what the future will look like. Even hospitality they're already gearing up in some cities for like 80% occupancy, which is a faster recovery than a lot of the industry anticipated in 2021. I think a lot of that is due to personal travel, not business travel. So I think the question or the jury's still out on what business travel will look like. A lot of people have gotten very comfortable with not having to get on planes at the crack of dawn in order to make an important meeting. Will that be a trend that continues? Do people miss a lot of that in-person interaction or has the virtual meeting really supplanted the need for having to get on a plane. So I think some of those questions still remain, but I think generally there's a lot of optimism there for good reason. And I guess the the one asset class that that's kind of for me, the one that's, that, that hangs in the balance the most is really retail. And I think retail is interesting in that there's the social element and the experiential element that people enjoy. And I, I say that, you know, very much with like a personal bent or a personal bias there, but 
there, there's so many types of retail, right? There's the, there are the restaurants, there are the activities, but then there's also just even the in-person shopping experience. And that's something that isn't really replicated with an online experience, but just how much retail space is needed to support a positive and, and, a a delightful shopping experience is kind of unknown. So I think there the question is, will the metrics change in the square footage allotted for every, you know, X number of people in a population. And I believe university of Texas in Austin did an interesting case study or a research report on that last year. I'm just looking at population sizes and total square footage needed to support that for a retail space. I think that may be something that changes. And so how will that retail space be repurposed? That's beyond my pay grade. I think that depends on each uh, owner operator and developer to decide. But I I do think that we will see significant changes in how retail space is utilized in the coming years. I think it's a, it's a fascinating point, specifically on the retail side. I mean, you look at Best Buy years ago, you know, survived because they embraced showrooming and they embraced, you know, trying to take advantage of of the experience there and, and embracing people standing in the middle of the aisle and checking the price on their phone at Amazon or whatever the case may be, and then playing off that, well, wouldn't it be great to just take it home with you? So there's a lot of consumer behavior that's yet to be determined at this point. But I, for one, am never going back in a grocery store since I got my groceries delivered for the last year. Right. Not having to stand in line and also having to load all those groceries. If you're you know, a city dweller, then having to, to carry all the groceries yourself, or if you're more in the suburbs, just even having to load it into your car, avoiding those headaches is, is really a blessing. But you know, it's interesting what you say in terms of Best Buy, because I think about like the Best Buys and the Apples of the world, and like they really have done a great job of building out an experience when you go into the store. You're not just going to like try on a sweater. You're going because you want to interact with their product experts. You want to actually touch and feel the technologies. And I think that the retail brands that will retain very strong in-store activities or just see high volumes of visitation will be those that continue to master that and provide that as a differentiation in their experience that they're offering. So you mentioned at the beginning, you know, specifically around industrial, like people preparing for that because of changing consumer behavior. But some of the components inside the broader commercial portfolio were certainly slow to adopt that. I mean, there's a on the front page of the paper here in Dallas today, 14 shopping centers, you know, and a REIT that owns 14 shopping centers, closing them up and going out of business. Like, what were the things that were being done in those particular areas to prepare for the changing behavior? And why did industrial get it right and retail get it wrong? It depends on the investment strategy of the individual investor. And some of them were getting really excited about industrial when they were watching, you know, Amazon's growth curves, they were watching Walmart's growth curves, and they were like, well, these are really interesting business models. It's very disruptive. They were even, you know, some of the uh, institutional investors that I've, I've worked closely with were even looking at behaviors of e commerce first retailers where you look at certain brands, whether it's, you know, shoe brands, luggage brands, et cetera, where they started with an online presence and then were slowly finding their way to brick and mortar locations. And they're like, well, wait a second, this is like an inverse of what we've seen historically. We need to get ahead of that curve. And I think those are the institutions that were best prepared to embrace and take advantage of this transformation. I think those that had had a retail only approach to investments were were kind of not stuck in denial, but kind of stuck in their way of doing things where 
they had a specific investment thesis and what are you going to do? You can't really, you could change your investment thesis, but that, that requires a, a huge undertaking, I'm sure. And you have to look at your, the returns that you promised your LPs and make very big moves from there. It's much easier to kind of turn a blind eye and say, no, we can just find the right brands to occupy our spaces and we'll be okay. But in a, in a COVID world where everything's shutting down, then like the best brands didn't keep your occupancy up and it didn't keep maintain your ability to collect, you know, sense of sales that just wasn't part of what that year offered owners. It's an amazing point. It kind of goes to the crux of, of what you do, you know, in the old days using, you know, quick serve retail, for example, you know, find a McDonald's and if you're around there, you're probably in a pretty good spot, right? Or, you know, what is the traffic counts and what are the you're you're just you know an example of an investor who's looking at some altogether different behavior uh, indicator, leading indicator that's going to try to change where it goes from here. What are some of those things that that are people people looking at? How do how do they take advantage of the information asymmetry to to either reposition themselves or to altogether change the way they think about their portfolios? I think that's that's such a phenomenal question because I think that's what everyone's grappling with right now is what alternative data sets do I need to leverage? to make smart decisions. And I think people were really coming around to, you know, using mobility data. Okay, that's going to be helpful. Let's use demographic data, maybe some transaction data. Now I can build out this profile of different neighborhoods, zip codes, buildings, census tracts, etc., like however granular they wanted to get and make really smart investment decisions and also recruit or or really try to a- attract the right tenants. It was also great for site location on the on the occupier side. Now it's a little bit more complicated because you're like, well, have behaviors just inherently changed? So you're you're trying to marry the data that you have with this unknown where people have been on lockdown. So there really is no data. And I think that that creates a really interesting challenge and people are trying to figure out interest, ways to work around it. But I do think it's becoming kind of table stakes that if you're trying to be thoughtful and data-driven about your investment decisions, you're going to be leveraging multiple dimensions of data to understand consumer behaviors, brand performance, and site location behaviors. And that includes the mobility data, the transaction data, the demographic data. And I think in terms of each asset class, it's a little bit different in terms of what you're looking for, that signals go, no-go decision. But thinking about some of the investment decisions that are being made, even in terms of which markets to be in, you want to stay in you know, major gateway cities, do you want to move to the really exciting, rapidly growing secondary markets? Where do you want to be? I think some of the things that they're looking at beyond some of those metrics I already mentioned are things like number of graduates with degrees in STEM, number of patents filed, just other things that say give signal to the fact that like these are markets where there will be a lot of growth because the labor force is there to support the types of jobs that are becoming increasingly popular and also pay at a specific rate where they're going to be able to pull in talent from outside those markets so that way there'll be continued growth. So I think that those are other data sets that that folks are looking at and definitely should be looking at. Well, it's, yeah, it's interesting as you think about, I mean, it's just like, you know, advertising, for example, you know, you start to think about well, what's the behavioral, the demographic, the psychographic, the things that may be a little bit more indicative, but but not as um, as straightforward to men to, to measure. I mean, you look at you look at location based data and you look at transaction based data. 
as a, as a species, we're all becoming hypersensitive of who has my information and where is that information placed and what kind of decisions are made about me as a result of that data. You know, th- that's all very commonly used, I mean, it's certainly around retail and certainly around hospitality and things like that. What are they doing differently now in the face of, you know, that not necessarily being as widely available over time? Yeah, I think that that's that's something that everyone's grappling with. I mean, you even have you know Facebook and Apple and, and the controversy there. We definitely won't talk about anything too controversial uh, on today's podcast. But you know they're they're struggling to say, okay, well, who should own information? Who should have access to information? And what kind of opt in or opt out defaults do you want to offer the consumer to create? safety for the consumer and to, to make sure that they're comfortable because so much, as you've mentioned, of the ad space and of the way that people think about customer acquisition is based on an oversharing of data. And so now people are getting a lot more sensitive to that. And so how that changes consumer behaviors means that the companies are going to have to adapt. I think there's a lag there though. I don't think anyone's had to make significant changes to their technology stack or to their the data that they're acquiring yet, because a lot of those changes are going into effect now. Um, but I do think in terms of like what people are worried about and how they're thinking about working around it, it's definitely making sure that they have the appropriate opt-ins or opt-outs. So that way they can say that they're you know offering best in class experiences and offering the best in terms of privacy and protections to their consumers. I think that's infor- important. And I also think that it means that brands are going to want to own the customer's experience as well, where they're not just going to be relying on different ad networks to support them, but they're going to want to own that experience. And I think about Sephora as an example of that, where they, granted, they advertise everywhere, especially to to demographics such as mine, but their app is an increasingly popular channel for them to collect information. And you, as a consumer, are very likely to give them information because that helps you get the right coupons and discount codes and you know special birthday emails, et cetera. So if they figured out a good way to incentivize the consumer to share information, but I'm more likely to do it directly to Sephora who can offer me that benefit versus to a social network that doesn't give me that benefit and would pass along my information to not just Sephora, but all of these other competitors that I may or may not want. Um, having access to my personal information. I'm a little disappointed that Sephora doesn't target me more, but that's a completely different podcast, I'm sure. So, you know, my my company, Axway, you know, we're in the um, in the API based integration integration business generally. So, taking large data sets and trying to make sense of them and make apps talk to them, talk to each other, and it's all kind of core to what we do. But it sounds like what you guys are doing is is taking it much more from a a data centric approach, so companies can have that common view to make current decisions, but also to prepare themselves for making decisions in the future with things that are maybe not as top of mind today. Yeah, that sums it up really nicely. What we've what we've done is we've built out a data partnership network where we partner with tens of different data providers that cover different slices of information that we see as helpful to understanding what's happening across the commercial real estate landscape. We've fused all of those data sets together in a commercial real estate-oriented knowledge graph where we connect information on the geospatial level, so on the property level with the geospatial metadata on on each property with the transaction history, the tax history, ownership history, debt history, and information on occupiers. And as a result of that, we're able to provide insight both on individual properties, 
markets, asset classes, ownership portfolios in terms of what where they've been transacting, the volumes in which they've been transacting, the size of their transactions, lenders, similarly, who's lending to whom, who are the, the lenders doing highest volume in specific asset classes or regions, and then where occupiers are located. And all of that data may be interesting to you know everyone across the you know the, the United States or elsewhere, but it's specifically geared toward anyone who's interested in commercial real estate. And it could be those who are directly involved in commercial real estate oriented transactions or those who service the industry and then maybe slightly outside of commercial real estate, but still provide services to core players in the space. And and that's, you know, the core players in the space, that's got to be a bit of a changing, a changing target, a moving target. Um, recently in Houston, uh, a PE that kind of came out of nowhere, bought an entire residential development and is going to turn it into single family rentals with, you know, a whole different look at what the asset class might be. Is that something that, you know, is this going to democratize the investing across a broader network of potential investors by having it in a way that you can make, you know, different kinds of decisions? I mean, I think that's kind of the altruistic dream of data is like you get to like, you weaponize data and then you make it accessible to everyone. So you even out the playing field. So that way it's just how you use the data that differentiates your one from one from another. I think the reality is there's still a talent gap in commercial real estate where not every institution has said, I'm going to bring on the appropriate resources to harness the power of data and help create a data infrastructure to make help us be smarter um, or more thoughtful. About, maybe well, we'll take out smarter, but maybe be more data driven about our our decisions. So I think part of that is yes, Reonomy would love to be a part of that evolution, but it also is on each institution to say we are strategically of the the mindset that we need to adopt tech. We need to adopt data to change the way that we're running our business. And there we're seeing kind of an interesting spectrum of like who's being data-driven and who's a little bit late to that, <laughs> to that adoption of, of data. Well, and you think about it, you know, commercial real estate has, has historically been very much a good old boys network. I mean, it's the people you know and you have lunch with and you play golf with are the ones that are, you know, making the deals happen. How do you, how do you get those those humans on board with a more data-driven approach to make them more productive? Or is it just survival of the fittest? They're going to fall away when when the math problem takes hold. I think there are, there are several things. Firstly, FOMO, just the fear of missing out is something that weighs on everyone, whether it's in social settings or it's in professional settings. And especially when you're used to being doing deals on you know, over drinks and kind of using your network to make relationships or making deals happen, and suddenly some people are adopting technology and they're seeing interesting successes and some people are using data in in very forward thinking fashion. You don't want to be the one who hasn't done that. So I think there is a bit of peer pressure that gets people moving. The early adopters definitely pull the rest of the group forward. And I think part of it is also changing of the guard. You have a lot of people who grew up in real estate, I mean, I think about some of the major players in New York City, where, where I'm based. These are there are a lot of significant family offices where the initial acquirers of real estate were, let's say, the the grandparent, and now the grandson's taking over or the reins from the, the 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 parent. And I think that part of that changing of the guard means there's also a changing of perspective. Where yes, the grandfather did everything with gut, and then the father did everything with relationships. 
but then the grandchild who grew up going, getting potentially more formal education, potentially getting training in other institutions comes in saying, I want to be a little bit different. I also come from, uh, a generation that is more comfortable with technology. And so I think that also plays a role in, in, uh, encouraging people to adopt technology. Not that there isn't still a lot of work to do across the board. Real estate is a little late to the game compared to other financial sectors, but, but I do see a lot of positive change in, in that regard. It's a great point. And I, uh, I, I took a run for a couple of years doing a, a disruption on the retail uh, uh, residential side of real estate. And it's so the, the consumer behavior is such an incredibly powerful driver that even <laughs> people, people will make decisions contrary to their own interests based upon the historical pull and the historic change. So the change management of um, even beyond the FOMO, I think it's got to be a really interesting thing that there's going to create a, a gap for the people that take advantage of this and the, and the people who don't. And ultimately, they'll catch up, I think. But but it may be painful if you don't. And the change management is is really hard because you also have you have a lot of different factors working with and against you. On the one hand, people want to be successful. Everyone wants to be successful. So that's good. But you also have a lot of internal and third-party stakeholders when you're rolling out a new technology because of how relationships support each other outside of an organization where you have an LP and a GP relationship. So if one is adopting technology, how do you ensure the other one's also on board? So that way you can exchange best practices and kind of speak the same language. Then you have the brokerage team. If it's not in-house, it's third party. You have the property managers, et cetera, et cetera. And so you've built this web of different entities that need to adopt the technology, depending on the technology, all at the same time in order for that technology initiative to be successful. So just because one of those nodes has decided that, yes, we are committed and we are investing and we have everyone on board, you now have to encourage all of those entities that kind of move outside of your organization to also buy into that same vision. And I think that's a a very unique challenge. And it means that people who are spearheading technology initiatives really have to be great at relationship building. It's not just about, you know, getting internal buy-in, which in itself requires good relationship building, but you have to be able to go outside of your organization and help drive change too. Words to live by. Words to live by. Okay, so the last question that I typically ask is one that's a little bit personal. And it's uh, when the day is over, good day, bad day, and you put your your AirPods in to walk home there in Manhattan, what do you like to listen to? So I like I used to choose music based on mood, but here's a, a behavioral change that I noticed in myself with COVID. I am now a podcaster. I spend so much time interfacing with people and in and out of meetings pre-COVID that at the end of the day, I just wanted music and to kind of tune everything out. And now I miss some of that just like regular banter and exchange of ideas. So podcasts all the way. If you want me to kind of list off some of my favorites, I'm happy to do so. But podcasting in general has become my new thing. Well, certainly glad you decided to be a part of this one. I appreciate you joining and I wish you guys all the best. Thank you so much. It was, it was a pleasure chatting with you. I had the following key takeaways from my conversation with Aviva. First, the pandemic changed the way we interact with brands. And although the industrial real estate industry is generally optimistic, questions remain, especially in retail. The brands that will thrive post-COVID will be those that focus on the experience aspect of shopping that can't be replicated online. 
Consumers have adapted to online shopping over the past year, and brands like Apple and Best Buy have moved to a more sensory experience for their customers in order to secure their success. Second, the real estate industry is grappling to determine the alternative data sets they need in order to make smart decisions. In a post-lockdown world, behaviors have changed, so managing multiple dimensions of data is vital to be thoughtful with your investments. For example, stakeholders have always, but are especially now leveraging mobility data, demographic data, and transaction data to make more informed investment decisions. Third, controversies around data rights, privacy, and security are changing the way brands interact with customer information. To stay on top, brands need to get creative about how they collect customer data by building trust directly with the consumers. For example, Sephora continues to collect customer data by offering special incentives like birthday gifts or free samples. Third-party data like Facebook will take a backseat to first-party data as we all have become more hypersensitive about privacy and personal data collection. And fourth, in change management, there are many factors working for you or against you at all times. Relationship building is a key to cultivate in the real estate world since all the players in the game are juggling multiple competing interests at once. The most important thing is to zoom out, keep your perspective broad, and ultimately align on a shared vision, aligning all the parties. Thanks for listening to Transform It Forward, the podcast that gives you an inside look at some of the world's most effective transformation processes. If you like this episode, please be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Paul French, and I look forward to being with you next time.